Hey everyone, <laughs> Ryan. Shh. My name is <laughs> my name is Amanda, and perhaps one day my epitaph will read, "Here lies Amanda. She loved this song." Until then, I hope Cover Story will speak for a love of music and lyrics. As a kid, I got stuck in my head sometimes, and music seemed to be the only way out. Hours were spent in my bedroom making mixtapes for a select few, with the hopes of turning them on to something new while carefully curating the unforgettable classics for them. The idea for Cover Story came to me at many different angles, most acutely while sitting on my porch, listening to music on my own or with some friends. I'd hear a cover, or an original I thought was a cover, that would just blow me away. It begged the question I'd often ask my late-night, early-morning porch regulars. Okay, so tell me a cover song you like better than the original, and what makes it so great. Many late-night musings on the porch ensued. Heated debates ensconced in laughter and cigarette smoke swirls solidified some songs that Cover Story wants to share with you. Thanks to my co-host, producer, and old-school pal Filler, a.k.a. The Bone, we are sharing episode 17 with you tonight. If you haven't had a chance to listen to all of our episodes, it's okay, we understand. But we thought this was a good moment to point out some episodes where we feel like we hit our stride and welcome you to go back and listen. Check out episode 5, where we talk about Hazy Shade of Winter on side A and The Promise on side B. Or episode 13, Mixtape Revelry, featuring Violent Femmes and Black Sabbath. And we have one that's close to Filler's heart, episode 16, Frenching and Drenching, where we get to talk about Mike Patton and I forget who's on side B. <laughs> but it's it's very good. In the meantime, if you don't feel like backtracking, just sit tight Settle in, grab your drink of choice, and join us on our porch for this episode, where we will chat about Frank Sinatra on side A and Fleetwood Mac on side B. So, for our side A, there's so much that can be said about Frank Sinatra. Luckily, Filler did a lot of the heavy lifting as he takes us through the seminal Sinatra Joe Beam albums of the late 1960s. My reference point of Old Blue Eyes as a kid was how they portrayed him in The Godfather, so I'm very glad Filler is here to enlighten us all. And for our side B, from British blues to California rock, from smooth sunshine to the most haunting breakup lyrics ever, we have a side B that's packed to the gills. And much to filler chagrin, his lovely wife Jenny and I channel a little black magic woman and gypsy as we chat about legendary rock and roll band Fleetwood Mac and one of the most incredible front women and songwriters of all time, Stevie Nicks. And without further ado, filler, can you hit that side A, seal vous play. This is just a little samba built upon a single note. Other notes are bound. May 2003. I'm a kid, I realize now. I'm 22 years old. I had just met my future wife and the future mother of my child to be. I'm a different person, though, or the memories I have of that time feel like I'm remembering somebody that's much different than the person I feel like now. But several core things are unchanged. A passion for music, making music, listening to music, living by music. That goes beyond passion. A lifestyle, living through it, living with it, using it as a roadmap, having it as a companion. Something I'd later realize was a gift, never to be taken for granted, and always to be preserved and enhanced mindfully on a daily basis. I board a plane to go meet my best friend Pete, who is graduating undergrad from a super-liberal, work-hard, play-hard liberal arts school in Portland, Oregon. 
They have this annual ritual called Renfair, where all the seniors burn their thesis and everyone parties in this insane theatrical way for three or four days, all over the campus, filled with all sorts of events. It's like this total animalistic anarchy, but with some sort of underlying book of etiquette or rules that's been in development for decades upon decades. It's quite a scene, and I felt that as an honorary, unofficial graduate of the school, one by association, actually all of his friends would become great friends of mine, that I had to fly out to Renfair and experience it one time. That evening, I lost my tiny Zoolander-era cell phone on the airplane, and I realized it while deboarding. Of course, I flipped out and made a scene that would have had me arrested by today's aviation security standards, but it ultimately ended up being a good thing to be off the grid for a bit. I arrive at P-Test that he shares with four or five other looming graduates, and I'm off kilter and I'm stressed out. The party was in warm-up mode, so we played some poker and stayed up late. But then it was time for everybody to rest up for the epic party marathon that was officially set to ensue the next day. I couldn't sleep. I had already been an undiagnosed insomniac for most of my young life, and I was particularly off-kilter this evening. Pete, a good friend and a good host, set up just the right mood to get settled. For years before, I had always heard a ton of Sinatra at Pete's childhood home. Via osmosis, his family taught me a lot about facilitating a comfortable and loose social environment, and Frank Sinatra was essential to any good, lowly-lit, ambient dinner party with big bowls of rigatoni and even bigger bowls of dry martinis. I learned a lot about antipasta, giving good toasts, and making people around me feel good. Honestly, I'm not one for nostalgia in the slightest, but if I could have preserved some of those evenings in an airtight jar, had I known how to do that, I would have. This particular late night in Portland, Oregon, trying to get some rest, being wound up and off kilter, Pete put on a Sinatra record that had somehow flew under my radar all these years. I would later find out that Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim was the album that introduced Americans to the relaxing, wavy, ultimate cool and mellow sounds of bossa nova. Jobim in particular with his laid-back baritone and his perfectly restrained guitar play. It was kind of a double-edged sword because it immediately relaxed me but it actually kept me awake so I could hear the entire album straight through. Halfway through the second listen is when I estimated that I actually fell asleep. I may have only gotten two or three hours of sleep that night, but it was quality, and it set the mood right for the weekend. Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim, recorded in 1967, was nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year, and it actually lost out to the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The album sees Sinatra take front and center on a large handful of tracks mostly penned or co-penned by Antonio Carlos Jobim. The crooner soars while Jobim keeps him gently anchored and reins him in with his tasteful restraint. It is these versions, not Jobim's originals, that would effectively put the pill in the meat for Americans to latch onto what was a new style of music for them. But in the grand scheme of history, it is also Sinatra's versions and this collaboration that would prove to become the standards that would replace the standards. To this day, it is still one of the most well-received cocktail hour albums in existence. When in doubt as to the diversity of your guests, everyone will feel the ultimate comfort of the Sinatra Joe Beam vibe, whether they realize it or not. The right lighting and the right music. 
It is that simple, people. Neglect one or the other, and you have not realized the full potential of the vibe. That weekend did end up being debaucherous, more akin to the speed of Frank Sinatra the man and less like the cool, relaxed rhythms of Frank the artist and performer. The memories from that weekend are hazy, like scattered snapshots. Standing around a keg of beer at 11 o'clock in the morning with a leather jacket on and no shirt underneath. Watching some stranger come out of nowhere and dump a beer over my friend's head and then walk away. Standing in the middle of the street with what felt like thousands of people that sloped heavily for miles, only to see tens of thousands of tiny, bouncy, racket-type balls released from the top of the slope. It was strange. Hazy and messy as it was, I made a small handful of lifelong friends that weekend. But I have one very vivid memory, and that is simply the experience of hearing Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim for the first time. From The Girl from Ipanema, to Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars, to I Concentrate on You, it was one seductive experience after another, with the most beautiful performances and seemingly otherworldly arrangements. Absolute mastery. I live life with this constant companion, and my most vivid memories are attached to sounds, songs, and artists. Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim brings us into a version of ourselves that we all want to be, cool and relaxed, open to feeling, walking lightly, dancing gently, the ultimate mellow. Leaving behind all of the false, contaminated characteristics that are associated with the word gentleman, the actual true definition of a gentleman is someone who makes everyone around him feel comfortable with themselves. And in that sense, I'd say that this collection of songs is the music equivalent of a true gentleman. Shall I be the clown for you, Bonita? I will be anything you say Bonito Don't run away Bonita We're live, Bonita Did you hear what Ryan asked? She asked if Bonita meant little bone Or if it meant <laughs> pretty girl It's, the, fe- it's the, um, the female of little bone It's the female equivalent <laughs> Bonita would be little dude bone. Bonita Reno. Bonita Rina. (laughs) Bonita Rina. Uh, I love how you somehow talk about my Uncle Peter. Yeah. yeah. And then you you have him with a quintessential gentleman, (laughs) Frank Sinatra. Well, hey. It's a a fine. uh, Well, well, ultimately, the end of it said, like, uh, you know, the true definition of a gentleman is somebody who makes those. Around him or her, yeah, uh, feel comfortable with themselves. Well, and he does, and they both do. Pete, Pete inherited that gene as well, right? Like, hey, you know, like the hey. Mike Damone, like, isn't everything great? Isn't this place so nice, you know, everything is nice. The place that you're at is great. You're great. Everything yeah. feels good. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and just on on the surface, like, that is the. Uh, Distilled down definition of a gentleman. Yeah, gentleman. I like it. I like it. Mm-hmm. So, who has a, uh, a Frank Sinatra like touch point? Like, what is you? Yours is obviously the Costanzo family, and that's. Uh, but yeah, they kind of introduced me to that. So for me, I was fourteen, 
and I was working. It was my first job, and I was a bus girl. Lord knows why my parents suggested that this would be a good job for me. I weighed probably like 87 pounds. I was never upper body strength. So they had me walk. <laughs> they had me walk down the tray. <laughs> those trays. Holy moly! Uh, to the Beach Club restaurant. And now back then, it is not the fine oh, establishment. <laughs> got some stories too. <laughs> it was run by someone. Did you work there too, Philip? At the same time as this fight, Holy moly. I've got some stories, so, and he was there for him. So, okay, essentially, anyway, for our listeners, no like, like the, the, the dark side of the moon to, like, the lifeguarding and, like, everything that was happening in the daytime at the beach was, like, the dark side at the restaurant at night, and I had the pleasure of being a cabana girl by day and then a bus girl <laughs> by night. Mm. I, again, I don't know why yeah. my parents were, were driving such a, a tight... Uh, I would say this. I would say, um, well, you were a lifeguard, so that that is a response. Eventually, but uh, like I didn't like I was a cabana boy. I didn't learn anything about anything. Sleeping, like, I just like as far as like my job, like I, I saved some money, yeah, um, and eventually like bought a crappy car or whatever, and that's yeah. great. The clitoris, but, so, so yeah, the clitoris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You see what happens when you remember shit? <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I mean, with a, they don't really forget that, you know. It was an 87 Ford Taurus. <laughs> it was tan, but it wasn't tan. We actually used to call it Caucasian it was like golden. color. Golden. Oh, yeah. Because okay. <laughs> it pretty much, it just looked like a white person. It did, with a little but, bit of a sunburn. Right. Or a little bit of like a salt water burn or right. some shit. Right. I don't know. But, um, oh, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Real good front. I never went in the clitoris. No. Anyway, <laughs> another yeah, topic. Better for it. <laughs> um, where were we? Oh, the, the restaurant. So, anyway, so the point is, <laughs> the point is, as we step away from the, your car, the clitoris, um, the restaurant. It was so shady. I'd go there, and um, I worked with like the Rogers, the old Greg Rogers, and uh, Chris Rogers. Dude, what was the boss's name back then? Nick. Did he have a little Nick mustache? Franco? I don't know. I had Nick Franco, maybe or Nick Frankie, Frankie Nick. I just remember a guy with a little mustache that said some nasty shit to me when I was fifteen. Probably, but I was well, the just only, in front of me, not to me. I was the only girl back there, and this was when like um, Billy Gleason, my friend Billy Gleason, was a, a bus boy. And I think John Day and Tommy Coyne. It was like mayhem, and they were doing like whippets, and like you know, I mean, I was just like, oh, my dude, God. this is. Let me just cut the bread, you know. Let me do is, my that's, job. That's Alan Hurst DNA, right? But there. but I'll tell you what, Greg Rogers and Chris Rogers would walk me home, like you know, after yeah. we'd been like drinking our little Budweisers or whatever, they'd walk, make sure I got home I'm safely. I'm sure they would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did nicely. No, no, nicely. That's all good, no. gentlemen. Frank Sinatra, no doubt. And so, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> and so, um, but Frank Sinatra was on repeat like that's the only cd oh, or whatever yeah. was playing back then tape you know that's, track, who that, the hell that, knows? that is much better than uh but i knew every one, single song the, the one like and i love the beach boys but it was it was like like an early like bubblegum version of the beach boys like album that was just like yeah. till the daddy takes the t-bird away good vibrations yeah like yeah well well no good vibrations Amazing. i mean i love that song but like you know, Daddy take the T-Bird away, like, every fourth song in the rotation for, like, seven hours while, like, Grandma's like, there's too much salt on my pasta. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, yeah. It was the Frank Sinatra all the time. So, literally, I became, like, I know every single lyric to pretty much, you know, every Frank. But <laughs> and it's, it's funny. But not Bonita. I don't want to go up too off the rails, but, like, 
you know, like, I didn't really understand, like, why Grandma couldn't have caffeine. Oh. And so, you know, they'd always, like, everybody in that restaurant would, oh, you'd be like, oh, my God, like, I'm only 16. Like, please don't order dessert or coffee. And then, like, just, just get out. Just get out, please. Please. This has been a nightmare, and it's only been Too one much. night. And I'm Too here much. five it's nights a week. Night it's been a nightmare. And, and, and then Grandma always ordered coffee. And it was always like decaf. Yeah, with the decaf. You know, and she's sweet, like 98. You know, because grandma was not, we're not talking about grandma being 60. This is great grandma. Great, great, great grandma. And like, you know. Do you know as a 16 year old the difference between decaf no, and No, you're like the orange one, the brown one. I don't know. No. You know how many times I, pro- I, I probably gave grandma caffeine at, at, seven, at 7 o'clock? That's usually when she goes to sleep. Oh my God. Anyway. But um, we have plenty of. Uh, Maybe I should save them for another episode. Yeah. But uh, we have our own Neil's on the Beach stories. Oh, my God. Neil's on the Beach, the restaurant. Mm. For all of our listeners, this episode has been sponsored by Neil's on the Beach, a coupon. Oh, and now Mr. C's. <laughs> Download your coupon. You want a $32 uh, plate of overcooked rigatoni. <laughs> a rigatoni. And a $17 water <laughs> down market. Frank. So I was talking to my dad tonight about Frank Sinatra because I said to him, correct me if I'm wrong, but The Godfather, like they totally rip Frank Sinatra apart in that. And like, right. what, what, what's the real deal there? I mean, I don't really know, but I guess he, he kind of ratted some mobsters out and oh, never, they never let him live it down and it's kind I, of a wuss. I think, nah, I, I think what, I, I, I don't think he was supposed to be Johnny Fontaine. I think that Johnny Fontaine was like one of these other I think maybe Johnny a wannabe Frank was supposed Sontrain? to be like a wannabe Frank Sontrain. Frank Sontrain. Yeah. I don't think he was supposed to be a Sinatra. I think he was supposed to be like a, a wannabe, like mm. flash in the pan, like crooner. Mm. You know. Um, so I have to fit in this story. Yes, um, tell us. I'm not going to tell this story well. When I told my my uh, my good buddy and and music collaborator producer DJ, my buddy Sean. Um, who for years had uh, this show in Brooklyn before Brooklyn got totally hipstered out called Brazilian Beat. Um, he was a DJ and he had this weekly show. He had this weekly uh, DJ party in Brooklyn um, at Black Betty when it still existed called Brazilian Beat. Um, you know, Sean's like a, a real knowledge on Brazilian music. So he told me um, that the story behind, and I'm going to butcher this, but the story behind um, Antonio Carlos Jobim uh, doing this record with Sinatra is that, like, you know, Sinatra and his crew, like, were, were idolized by people like Jobim and his circle, who were a group of elite bossa nova musicians in their own right. In, in Brazil, these guys idolized Frank Sinatra. He was like an honorary Brazilian. He was idolized in Brazil. And, um, and uh, you know, one day, like, like Joe Beam's hanging out in, like, they would, like, even though Joe Beam is like this tireless worker with this in- incredible work ethic, like, when you're Brazilian, like, you still prioritize um, like leisure. You yeah. still prioritize leisure. So they're hanging out in the middle of the afternoon, and I can't remember the, the, the Portuguese word for this, but it's in one of these places 
uh, he's there with like all of these like super world class like Brazilian musicians. They're there hanging out and they're drinking. It's the afternoon and whatever. And the phone rings and the bartender tells him, uh, you know, it's Frank Sinatra for, for, you know, Antonio Carlos Jobim on the fucking phone. And nobody believes him. He takes the call. He doesn't believe it for a while, whatever. And just like the president, like they put him through. Um, there's like his assistant, Sinatra's assistant. They put him through. Uh, they talk. He, he tells him, you know, there's there's nothing happening right now in music in America. Uh, you know, this this is stopped happening. Can you remind you know. me again of the year? Of it's like, like what's, what's the era? sixty-six. Okay, thanks. Sorry. So it's like sixty-six, sixty-seven, and he's just like, we we have to do a record together. Gets off the phone. He's blown away. This guy's his idol. Mm-hmm. Sinatra is Joe mm-hmm. idol. They're, it's, it's all their idols. Gets off the phone. He tells everybody nobody believes in whatever. Anyway, one thing leads to another. He's in America. They're, they're going to make this album together. And um, the, the day of the first session, um, Joe Beam's so nervous. He has so many nerves. And he, you know, the day before, he he calls some people and says, you know, I want to get into the studio early. I want to be there five or six hours early uh, because I just want to calm my nerves and I want to be prepared for, for when Sinatra shows up and all this stuff. Um, and so they're like, all right, yeah, you know, can you give somebody the keys? Whatever. All right. Yeah. We'll let you in like real early, like six, seven AM. He gets there six, seven AM. Sinatra's already been there for two hours with the engineer. <laughs> wow. And he, you know, he learns as everybody learns. Yeah. Sinatra was always five or six hours earlier than everybody else. Uh, that Sinatra, despite you know his his public persona, sure. is this tireless, uh, this tireless uh, uh, worker. Yeah, uh, he, he's not just a singer and a performer, but there's you know, yeah, he's an artist. Yeah, like a Michael Jackson. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's a great story. When we think that. about like American, uh, like American icons in music, mm-hmm. um, the people with the lasting power. Yeah. So Rosemary's Baby, right? Mia Farrow was in that with uh, the awesome Ruth something or other, who was in one of my favorite movies, um, Harold and Maude. Ruth, what the hell's her last name? Ruth. What anyway? Rosemary's Baby. That's where mm-hmm. I think Frank Sinatra. I don't know if they're married then or if that's where he kind of spots her Ruth Gordon Ruth Gordon Ruth Gordon yeah so Ruth Gordon from Harold and Maude she's in Rosemary's Baby which is a totally freaky movie but Mia Farrow in that plays I guess Rosemary (laughs) and and you know she's got that short hair and she and Frank Sinatra they get married they have but when you see Ronan Farrow, who now is all over the news, you know, right. that's what he supposedly was. And he's still young. He's like 32, 33. Yeah. And he's becoming a very accomplished journalist. Yeah, he's got the Pulitzer Prize yeah. for journalism, for breaking the whole Weinstein story yeah. and everything like that. But um, he looks a lot like Frank Sinatra. You know, uh, I actually, I thought he looked more like Frank like a few years ago. And now I see him looking, I can see... You can see Woody in him? No, I think I can. Oh. Yeah, dude. Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah. I think I think his blonde hair, blue eye thing is more Mia. And I see... I 
I think I see Woody, man. Yeah. I think I see. I think I think he's kind of bummed about it, but I think he's probably he's like looking in the mirror in the morning. He's like, Woody, fuck. Really? Woody's huh. finally here. Fuck. Yeah, could be. Creepy. July nineteenth, nineteen sixty-six. Oh. Cream and jeans. When did they get divorced? <laughs> well, I mean, who could live with uh, the wood? Or the lack of it. Oh. Who's who's the wood? Woody. Oh, Woody. Oh, sorry. Frankie. Frankie. Francis. Well, blue eyes at that point, he was probably smoking and drinking and slapping. Temper. Yeah. Yeah. Listening, <laughs> I was stuck in. A, I've been listening to Fleetwood Mac my entire life, literally. Their eponymous album Fleetwood Mac was released just a few weeks before I was born in 1975. Their music, in particular the song I want to share with you tonight, has weaved in and out of my life for as long as I was able to press play on my own. Landslide has always been one of my favorite songs of all time. Reserved for the quiet moments when I'm on my own, maybe feeling sad, maybe feeling nostalgic. As I'm sure you know, Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins covered Landslide in 1994. While I can appreciate the Smashing Pumpkins for their unique sound and accompaniment during my high school years, I just don't like their version. It doesn't speak to me the way Fleetwood Max does. Stevie Nicks seems to channel a wide range of emotions, and the real meaning behind the song has been hotly debated since its release. Was it about Stevie Nicks' father? Was it about the ebb and flow of life? According to Stevie, the meaning is much simpler and much more personal. I was tired of being poor, and I was tired of being a waitress, she says, recalling she and Lindsay Buckingham, her boyfriend and creative partner at the time, only having enough money for food, with living in poverty putting a strain on their relationship. It doesn't really matter to me what the lyrics are intended to be about. All I can share with you is how they make me feel and what they make me reflect upon, which is the fear of everything coming crashing down and not knowing how you're going to hold things together or put one foot in front of the other. It's about getting to the other side of things when it seems you have an insurmountable obstacle ahead of you. For me, that obstacle was grief. And as some of you may know, about five and a half years ago, my husband of nearly 10 years died. At the time, I had the most unusual juxtaposition taking place in my house. Half of my heart was holding the death of my husband. The other half of my heart, which thankfully seemed to shine light in even the darkest of crevices, was holding on to the new life and joy I was experiencing through my newborn sons. I listened to Landslide a few times back then, but couldn't really sing along to it anymore. Lines like, can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the seasons of my life? Well, I've been afraid of changing because I've built my life around you. Well, you see, these lyrics just made me stop in my tracks and just get lost in thought. And I'm not going to sugarcoat my grief. These lyrics definitely still strike an emotional chord within me. However, the lyrics, which once made me feel despair and loss, have just recently taken on a whole new interpretation for me. Perhaps because I'm on the other side of grief. Perhaps because I'm truly happy again, not just from the crutch of my boys, but from within. And perhaps because I can see that loving someone again is possible. The landslide that once made me feel debilitated and alone is now the same one that is carrying me forth with momentum and perseverance. But time makes you bolder, even children get older. And I'm getting older too. And if you see my reflection in the snow,
Um, so Amanda, that was a very, that was a very, you know, personal reading. Um, so tell us about uh, the darkest crevices. <laughs> the darkest crevices of the swollen pickle and the yeah. and the wide muff. Well, um, wait, I do want to talk about something humorous <clears throat> if we're talking about that. Right. <laughs> um, which was. First of all, let's talk about our knowledge of Fleetwood Mac in terms of their like turmoil and all the like drama that sort of mm. ensued. Yeah. All right. Let me let me set the stage, Bassman. We've got Bassman and Ryan in our studio with us, old, old friends. Mm-hmm. Imagine if the band was Filler and his wife Jenny and Pete, my cousin, cousin Pete and Robin. Okay, you got this band, this foursome, right? Right. They're married. Everybody's married. Then they go through violent breakups and divorces yet they still get on stage and play together and fucking bang out after this Fleetwood Mac album that I'm mm-hmm. talking about 1975 they come out with two years later Rumors which is just like ripe for the picking you've got right. songs all about like you know cheating and heartbreak and love yeah. and the chain that song The Chain which is like the only right. song in Fleetwood Mac's history that they actually all wrote together um, so just imagine that imagine that band that exists right. with two couples that have just broken up and then the poor drummer in the back like what the yeah. fuck I gotta bring, <laughs> he's, like, he's on his own bring yeah, but but bring cocaine. but bring like a lot of cocaine into the situation. Oh yeah, like a lot of it. Now that I wasn't yeah. factoring in the cocaine. Right. Are you saying that makes it easier? No, it makes it harder. Oh. Makes it makes the situation a little more sped up. Ooh. Yeah, it's a sixth wheel. That's Ryan. It's, it's, it's good. <laughs> it's definitely a sixth wheel. But I feel like that would be a very good Saturday Night Live skit about the one guy that's like not married or not like getting cheated on or like involved and he's just like shows up to practice like <laughs> right. you know you know you see yeah you see like my relationship with Fleetwood Mac is that they I buy like I bought their albums over the years and the albums as a whole are really beautiful song or they they have like an order to them you know but still after all these years like I'm personally not like I'm not that attracted to the Lindsey Buckingham sung songs, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's mm-hmm. common with a lot of with a lot of fans. Yeah, um, I'm not, and I, I know he's like a really prolific writer and whatever, but like his vibe is not something I connect to. I would say um, probably because he he's a folk singer, you know, he's like a, oh for sure, you know, and yeah, that's and how maybe, he started maybe that's out. Just, yeah, you maybe know, it's just not. Where my heart lies. Yeah, and then you had the right. two other dudes, McVie and um, Fleetwood, that come in more right. of like blues and rock and roll. Right. And then it's Lindsey Buckingham that, you know. Right. For me, there's just like, you know, there's one unique voice in the band, mm-hmm. and that's Stevie Nicks. Right. And that's what I'm attracted to. Yeah. Like, she could sing a bad song. Yeah. And I would sit there and listen to the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So this is funny. So <laughs> I dropped the boys off today with their grandparents and I was on my way back and I was listening to the entire um, Rumors album which is the second one that came out or it's 1977 and the song um, Silver Springs is on there and um, so this is just like high school young love because I the the first time I, I got dumped I was dating the lifeguard Andy okay and um, loved him dearly still a good friend of mine great guy but um, I remember he broke up with me when I was living in Italy. And how I got the, the, the news, Ryan, back in the day was um, not by email, not by phone call, not by text. It was by a fax machine. So I'm waiting. <laughs> a fucking fa- what the fuck? A fucking fax machine. So I'm in Italy. It's six hours time change. And we had this system. And, you know, he was at, at UPenn. And um, I know he'll never listen to this story. So it's okay. It's all right. So he was at UPenn. And we had the system where he's like, okay, I'm going to send you a fax at like, you know, um, 
like 10 p.m. your time. So I would go down to like the school office. This was a boarding school in, in Rome. I'd go down to the school office and I'd wait for the fax to come in. And so I'm down there like all excited. You know, it's November and I've been there for a couple months and I'm seeing this fax come in and it's like, dear Amanda, I think by now it seems that we should probably break and it's like coming so slowly and I'm like what is this breaking up with me and like the paper's coming out so slowly I'm like you gotta be fucking kidding me I got dumped by a fax so long story short is a terrible heartbreak and so I come back kind of vindictive as hell like this is crazy like I come back from Italy you know I've been drinking wine and smoking hash and so forth and so on and learning about history and speaking Italian and so I make him this mix, and the song I put on there is Silver Springs by Fleetwood Mac, which I hadn't really listened to since back then, but the lyrics to that song, it's like it's like so psycho, and I was listening, I was like, oh my god, this is like a real psycho song. It's like, I'll follow you down till the sound of my voice, it haunts you, and it's like all the, but to your point, Filler, Stevie Nicks, like the way she channels that yeah. song, and like the lyrics, and haunting, and yeah, you know, Yeah, she's anyway. got like a haunted vibe, a haunted voice. It's just like totally attractive. You know, she's yeah, she's attractive. She's like witch attraction. She is she's a, like witch. a witch. Yeah, yeah a witchy woman. Witchy yeah, she's woman. a witchy woman. Wait, but I had no idea. Early Fleetwood Mac, um, before Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, they wrote mm-hmm. Black Magic Woman. Right. I, I did not know that, which yeah. obviously Santana went on and to they, like. And they, like, so they, so Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks were like a couple and a songwriting duo and they weren't really... You know, they moved to Southern California or whatever, and they weren't really making it. They they weren't like they were known in circles, but they weren't really um, making waves with with their own music yet. And they got invited to like jo- join a pre existing band, which they subsequently took over. Crazy, yeah. Um, which uh, is just like a really interesting way for a band to start. It is interesting. Yeah, but like I feel like man, I I, I feel like she. Like, so they had a really not a great relationship. And he was, like, kind of abusive towards her, or maybe just totally abusive towards her, or whatever. Yeah. But, like, I feel like she was just the undeniable talent. Like, she could chant, like, she could channel whatever okay song he wrote into something special. And, like, she just kind of got vampired on. Totally. You know? And here's the thing, too. I was reading, like, so now they're going on tour, and, you know, Lindsey Buckingham, maybe you don't know this, but Lindsey Buckingham is not part of the tour. He got fired. He's, like, no longer in Fleetwood Mac. Um, And I was reading that either yesterday or today in Rolling Stone interview, and she was like, who cares? Like, we want to keep playing music. He wasn't getting back to us. The music is still great. We want to keep playing it, and we're going to keep going on, and that's what bands do. And so she was like, you know, too bad. You snooze, you I lose. mean, after Lindsay like Buckingham. the 70s and 80s, she's like lucky to be alive and well. Yeah. And fucking. Yeah, they all are. Right? Yeah. Mm. Mm. What's your favorite? Uh, do, do, besides the songs we talked about, do you have another uh, favorite Fleetwood Mac song? Yeah, I mean, I love. Or I, a favorite Stevie Nicks song? I mean, Dreams. I mm. love that song. Um, Thunder Only Happens When It's Raining. I love oh, that. Yeah. Um, and I also love, um, I love, um, secondhand news that, that song I, I, I love song. and Monday morning. Um, do you know, do you know the song Sarah? Yeah. Sarah. That's on Tusk, right? Sa- yeah. Sarah always, uh, like I, I put that in like a ton of mixes yeah. that I make that have nothing to do with Fleetwood Mac, like mixes of disco stuff to listen yeah. to on our front porch in yeah. the summer. And then all of a sudden I'll put Sarah in there. I love that song for some reason. Yeah, that's a good one. I think it's just such like a high quality song. It is. Yeah. They've got so many. I mean, the only the one song I don't like is I keep thinking about Goofy 
fucking Bill Clinton is that don't stop believing, right? <laughs> like, why do they, you know, like, do, you know, I never, I didn't like the song to begin with. That Lindsay, yeah. all right. But, I mean. I just think all his shit's kind of goofy. But, you know? It is goes, goofy. And let me tell if, you. If, if we were live right now. We took phone calls. Like somebody would call in and write and like tear me a new asshole, and You're I'd right. be totally open to it. I'd be like, right. All right, you know, I'll think about it. Well, here's the but thing: like that moment this when shit's I, like goofy. It is goofy, and I was telling you about how, like, like driving around to Queens of the Stone Age. That's like strange that I'm driving around to that, dropping the boys up. This, I was driving back from Tom's River. I'm in this like car, which you know is the modern day minivan. You know, let's call it what it is. And I'm driving around, and I'm totally like, you know, like the cliche mom, you know, 42-year-old woman. And I see a guy in a pickup truck, you know, he wasn't unattractive, pull up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm like totally an old lady rocking out to Fleetwood Mac. That's what it's meant for, I think, is like those yeah. those moms and mom jeans listening to. But it's very good. But in the context of like, the, you know, 70s, um, yeah. it's pretty hip shit. Yeah. And landslide still, still holds up. It's still pretty fucking hip shit now. Like, I would have the opposite reaction so somebody like windows are down it's warm out now it's summer last time we talked to everybody it was still winter oh yeah i ride my bike over yeah, here right but you do could you after this can you pump yeah we'll pump, we'll pump those tires thank you <laughs> um but uh you know I, I i feel like differently like you pull up next to me um i look kind of burly and like bigger guy you know whatever but like i'm blasting like sarah or yeah. something like that. like i like that irony it's like you pull up to me, like I like that's what I want. Like yeah, you huh? want a that little... dude's just rocking the fuck out, to like Stevie Nicks. <laughs> Lee Wynn Mac. Yeah. Stevie Nicks. Is I awesome. want that. that irony How funny that. is that scene in School of Rock with um, what's uh, that guy? Uh... Jack yeah, Black. Cusack, Joan Cusack when Joan she's Cus- when Joan she's Cus- the principal. Do you know which scene I'm talking yeah. about? And she's and he gets her drunk and um, mm-hmm. it's really funny. She starts like channeling Stevie Nicks. Jack Black was really funny back then. He was. What happened? He was. I think that's Cameron Crowe. Is full of rock. I think Jack Black probably like exceeded um, his own expectations for his career and became because he was so funny when they first had um, like Tenacious D. Tenacious D on HBO Mm -hmm. in the late nineties. That shit was unbelievable. I still go back and watch. Yeah, me too. My brother John got me into that. And then like, man, his career his career blew up. Tenacious D kind of blew up and, and all that shit. And I think he just exceeded his expectations for his career. And, like, he's probably just fucking done. He's just happy to be... Yeah, yeah. happy to be... He's like, you know... (laughs) If I were in a wheelchair, would you read to me? Is that part of your wedding vows? He's like, like, (laughs) why would I need to read to you? He's like... Or, or no, no, he's like... No, I'm fucking this whole thing up. (laughs) He's like, why couldn't you read? He's like, just don't want to. (laughs) He's like, if I were in a wheelchair, would you read to me? Why couldn't you read? Just don't want to. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Well, that is episode 17, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you will join us next week for episode 18 as we dive to... <laughs> where are we going? To England with a little Phil Collins, a little Genesis... Follow you, follow me. Until next time, look out streets. Here we come.
so sad.